session. I'm, I'm very excited to be able to talk to you a little bit about the, the research that I do with a couple of my colleagues here um, at the OII. And, and as Vicky already mentioned, I'm, I'm a lawyer, so I usually look at things from a legal perspective. And But what I want to do is actually talk about three aspects where I think that AI is disrupting um, legal concepts. And I think the only way to fix that problem is actually via an interdisciplinary approach. So I'm actually arguing that the law might not be fit for purpose, which is why we need ethicists and technologists to work together to actually give new strength to the law that we currently have. And yeah, I want to give you three examples um, where I think we need to focus a bit more and one of three areas that I'm focusing on as well. Uh, one is accountability, one is fairness, and one is privacy. So let's start with accountability. Um, and I, I've chosen the example of, of loan applications um, and how we have done this previously in the past. So usually when you go in a human-human setting, if you go to a bank and you apply for a loan, the loan officer will ask you a couple of questions. They might ask you what your income is, um, if you have any savings, your employment history. All these questions make sense. There is an intuitive link why a person asks you about your financial status in order to find out if you're going to fall no loan or not, right? There's an intuitive uh, connection there. What we see now is that we're moving away from those traditional data sources to make decisions. We use untraditional data sources. So a couple of examples here um, where um, credit institutions are now using Facebook profiles to decide if somebody should get a loan. So they look at your profile pictures, the friends that you have on Facebook, the groups that you join, the things that you post, the things that you like, and they infer if you're a reliable borrower or not. Similar things happen in the insurance um, space where also, for example, profile, um, social profile network information is being used to de define if somebody should get um, insurance and what premiums it should get. So, but that's not the only thing. In general, whenever we make decisions, we start to use very untraditional um, data that includes clicking behavior, typing behavior, um, geolocation, ice movement, <laughs> ice tracking, all of that to infer certain things about you, things that can be very privacy invasive and um, unintentional and very counterintuitive, where I don't really understand what my data says about me. I have no idea how my browsing behavior will affect my credit rating in the future. And this information can be endlessly replicated and, and shared with, with a lot of people. And not just in the financial services, also important decisions who has to go to jail, who can go to university. Um, if you get hired, fired, promoted, all of this information, all of big data is being used for that. And that poses questions for accountability. Because if in the future, if I don't get a loan or if I don't get a job, the first thing that comes to mind is to ask why. Why did I not get a job? What happened there? I want to have an explanation. And this is why I started thinking about this topic and look at it at first from a legal perspective to figure out if we do have a right that algorithmic decisions are being explained to you, because that would make a lot of sense. And just looking at it from a legal perspective, what I found is that I don't think we actually have a legally binding right that things are being explained to you. I was not very happy with the outcome of my paper. It's very hard to say from an academic perspective to actually admit to that, but I wasn't very happy with the outcome of the paper. But this was the starting point where I started to think about, I don't actually care so much about what the law says. Just because something is not legally required doesn't mean it's not ethically desired, which was the reason why Brent and Chris Russell and I got together and we now have a research program at DOII, which is called the Governance of Emerging Technologies. So Brent Middlestead will be talking in a couple of minutes. He's an ethicist. And Chris Russell is a machine learning expert. 
Um, so yeah, what basically starts like a joke in the sense that a lawyer, a philosopher, and a computer scientist walk into a bar, which we did, and we spent three hours screaming at each other because we wanted to figure out what a good explanation would actually look like. What do we think of good explanations? Because we set the legal question apart. We wanted to know what is it that you want to know? So Brent was very much interested in the trust side of things. For him, it was very important to figure out what is justified true belief? What are good arguments? What make arguments valid? And I didn't care about that at all. I wanted to have justice and accountability. I wanted to be able to contest the decision if I'm not happy with it. And Chris, the computer scientist, didn't care about either of those things. He just wanted to buck his code and understand what's going on in the black box. So even though we were all very, very passionate about explanations, we started to understand that we think very different things about that and see the explanations in very different ways. But we finally found a solution and actually wrote a paper together, um, which is counterfactual explanations um, um, to try to reconcile those, those approaches. And our method actually allows you to understand a little bit what's going on in the black box, also gives you more trust in a system, and it gives you accountability because you would be able to, for example, um, contest a decision if you're not happy with it. So the exciting part of that is that it actually got out of traction and Google has implemented our, our method now last year in, in, in TensorFlow. So now you can actually play with algorithms and understand what's going on in a black box. And um, Google is not the only one who is very fond of our idea because IBM, Microsoft and Flock also implemented our, our idea. So what that means is if you scream a lot at each other, it actually pays off at some point. Um, but we, we also learned that explanations are only one facet of true accountability because explanations are not justifications, right? I can tell you, for example, I'm not giving you the loan because I don't like your face. It's an explanation, it's valid. doesn't mean it's justified. So actually what you also want to look at is at the inferences to predictions and the opinions that algorithms have about you, right? All that big data is being collected about you and very sensitive things can be inferred. For example, if you're pregnant, if you're a liable borrower, if you're a good worker, if you should get promotion, if you have undiagnosed disorders, all of that information can be very privacy invasive. And that is the actual thing that you're concerned with. So again, I look at it from a, from a legal perspective and try to look at data protection law because you know this is very close to your private life. So if inferences, for example, are personal data, you would get a lot of data protection rights. And again, what I found is that AI actually disrupts the law um, in a very uh, untraditional way where we have to think creatively about those pro uh, problems. So Brent and I wrote a paper together, uh, which is called A Rights to Reasonable Inferences, Rethinking Data Protection, Law in the Age uh, with Data and AI, actually calling for new standards because we found that the law as it currently stands is not good enough to protect us. As you can see, it's 130 pages trying to make the point that law is not good enough. It was actually planned to be 160, but Brent threatened never to work with me again if I don't stop writing. So it's just 130 pages, but it's very important to point out that we found a lot of loopholes in the law, um, some of which are that we don't even know if inferences are personal data. So all the assumptions that algorithms are making are being made about you, it's not clear if it actually falls on the GDPR. Even if they do fall under data protection law, what the purpose of data protection law is, is not to regulate how we make decisions about you. So if you have a problem over how you're being evaluated, how you're being seen, how you're being assessed, you would need to find another law that helps you do that. Data protection law doesn't give you a remedy 
over how you're being seen by algorithms. And that is quite problematic because, as I already mentioned, very often we don't have standards for accurate and reasonable decision making because, in essence, a lot of times we don't have a right to get a job or insurance or loan or go to university. So if you don't have any laws that regulate how those decisions have to be made and data protection doesn't give you that, maybe it's the ethical thing to think about what would be reasonable. And that leads me to the current research project that we just started, which is a right to reasonable inferences in online advertisement and in financial services. And we just um, had two postdocs starting with us. One is a philosopher, the other one um, a legal scholar. And we are trying to figure out what would be a reasonable standard for inferential analytics in those two sectors. Um, in the future, we're going to look at um, other um, sectors as well that will include, for example, health, um, employment and criminal justice. But for this, um, is the, the current focus of our project. The last area where I see that um, AI is actually disrupting the law has to do with non-discrimination law. Um, again, that's something that we're all aware of, that whenever we talk about AI, we also have to think about bias and discrimination. So again, I did look at non-discrimination law um, and try to figure out if the law is actually good enough and it's good enough to protect us against those unintended and undesirable risks. And again, I have to say, it doesn't. Um, and it doesn't, actually, it's not really the law's fault or technology fault. It's just something that happened. If non-discrimination law is an answer to undesired behavior of people, right? Um, that means that very often we want to regulate or prohibit that people are um, unethical to each other or being racist or sexist or homophobic to each other. But the way that algorithms do that is very, very different than humans. So for example, um, if you think about um, price discrimination. So price discrimination means that um, the same product is offered to different people at different prices. In the offline world, you will be very, it will be very easy for you to figure it out. You can just go to different stores and compare um, fruits and the prices and pick the product that you think is fair or appropriate. Um, if, for example, Tesco doesn't let you into the store anymore, you know that you have been excluded from the market. How do you know that in an online world, right? How do you know if you're actually being offered the best price? Do you know what prices other people get offered? And do you know the advertisements that you don't see, right? So that kind of um, discrimination, you don't feel it anymore. Whereas in the offline world, there will be often the um, ability of the complainant to see that something's off, something feels unfair, unjust, but that unfairness, a feeling of unfairness might not be as easy to grasp anymore. And similarly here with um, the law, um, if you look at the, um, the classes that we want to protect that relates to sex and um, gender, ethnicity, religious beliefs, because we had historical experiences where people have used that to discriminate against people, right? Um, so this is how we constructed the world, how we group people, but algorithms might group people completely differently, right? It could be that algorithms start to discriminate against people who are born on a Tuesday, have brown socks and like dogs. But this class of people doesn't find recognition in non-discrimination law because we never had it. Or similar here with video gamers, um, which, for example, in China is something that could um, cause your credit score to drop. Obviously, that class of people doesn't find um, any uh, protection in non-discrimination law, but maybe it shouldn't. Maybe it should. So this is the um, 
um, the project that we're also working on, trying to figure out if the law doesn't give you enough protection, what would be the ethical thing to do? How can we increase and protect fairness um, in an algorithmic world? So yeah, basically that is um, the, 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 the program that we're currently working on. And I actually think that one of the reasons why I'm so excited about all of this what's happening is because I think it finally um, is clear to everyone that if you want to you know, use AI for the good, you really need to think of it from at least three perspectives. You need to think about, is the law actually helping you? Is the law good enough? And if it's not, what would be desirable? What would be the ethical thing to do? And then actually map it against technology and figure out if it's actually feasible. And if you do that, you can harness the full potential of AI, but make sure that you protect human rights. Thank you.